This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to the Friday morning sporting edition of Pacific Beats. I'm Richard Ewart. So coming up after Fiji's controversial loss to Wales, how many more times are Pacific Island teams going to fall foul of dodgy refereeing at the Rugby World Cup? The refereeing was very poor. The TMO was even worse because he had the benefit of slow motion replays. And I thought he, he made some pretty poor calls and uh, some of our tries, I think three of them in total, didn't count in the end. As former All Black star Julian Sevilla signs to play Super Rugby for Moana Pacifica, could he have opened the door for other big-name island players to follow? We've got a new coach of the calibre of Tana Umanga. We've now got players of the calibre of Julian. And yeah, it is going to have an impact on those that are probably been musing about Moana. And hopefully it will start to nudge things our way. And making the most of PNG's raw rugby league talent by bridging the language gap. They just didn't have the understanding of some of the real basic parts of getting a skill. But once we were able to get to that next level, the buy-in was very, very refreshing. More to come from Head of Elite Player Development, Joe Grimmer, on the outcome of that pilot program for PNG's Next Generation later in the program. We start, though, with the Rugby World Cup, and it's the turn of Tonga and Samoa to take centre stage this weekend when they play their opening pool round matches. First up, Manu Samoa, ranked 11 in the world, take on debutants Chile, who are at 22 on the standings and who lost their opening game, 42-12, to Japan. And then Tonga, currently rated number 15, take on the world's number one team right now. That's Ireland. So what are the prospects for the Akalitahi and the Manu? New Zealand Herald rugby writer Gregor Paul is with the All Blacks in the city of Lyon, but he's also keeping a close eye on the Pacific Island nations, and he joins us now live from France. Uh, Gregor, good evening to you over there in Europe. Uh, good morning to you. Thanks very much indeed for taking time out to join us. I'm sure you're pretty busy. I mean, these two games coming up uh, this weekend, the Tonga one obviously is generating an enormous amount of interest because of uh, uh, the ex-All Blacks that are included in their side now, having made the change under the new under the new regulations. But while it's a star-studded lineup on paper, it's a team that's really yet to prove itself. And up against Ireland, what do you think? Oh, look, tough opening game, isn't it? Uh, to play the world number one team and a team that are here with real aspirations to go all the way and win the World Cup are going to be pretty determined to, you know, to come into the game hot and hard. Uh, they've got a game behind them already, which Tonga don't, which which will benefit Ireland a wee bit. So, look, yeah, it's it's an outstanding game for Tonga to start, though, because they know exactly what they're going to be facing. Um, yeah, look, there's closer excitement because Tonga have accumulated... Uh, a number of ex-Old Blacks and a couple of ex-Wallabies as well. And you have a feeling that if they can mesh everything together, if they can find a bit of cohesion uh, and a bit of a game plan that works for them, then they're definitely talented. And it's whether they can all come together on the day, which you're right. We haven't seen them do that yet. But there's also hope, I think, that the big occasion, uh, you know, being at a World Cup, big crowds, a lot of pressure on both teams to perform and, you know, the guys that Tonga have brought in have got big game experience. Charles Pietau, uh, uh, Malachi Fekitov have both played at World Cups. I mean, Malachi is a World Cup winner, so he, he knows what it's like to play at the very, very, very peak of the game. So you'd like to think that that occasion will get the best out of them. And uh, we might see something click with Tonga, we might not. But I think everyone's 
aware that if we do see it, they, you know, they, they could be quite a challenging team for Ireland. How, how much pressure do you think the Irish are under? Because um, to my memory, it's the first time they've ever played in a World Cup where people are actually looking at them as genuine contenders. Yeah, look, I think so. I think they were probably genuine contenders at the last World Cup. What, what puts the pressure on Ireland is they're, they're a team, they're Celts, uh, and I know there's only two. Well, Celts prefer being the underdog. They don't like coming into contests when the expectation sits with them. And I'm sure that many people might be aware that Ireland have a particularly poor World Cup history where they've never gone beyond the quarterfinals. And there's a lot of pressure on them as a the number one team in the world to go to go beyond that stage and to get at least to the semi-final and break that hoodoo. So they'll be feeling that pressure now because it's all part of a campaign. The Irish public are quite nervous about the World Cup and what happens to the team because they've dominated the World Cup cycle to this stage. I think Ireland and France have clearly shown that the two best teams. So it's also a wee bit frustrating for teams if you dominate the cycle, then you get to the World Cup and you don't perform. And Ireland have done that before. Uh, they weren't, you know, they didn't perform particularly well the last World Cup. They got beaten by Japan and then hammered by the All Blacks, and they were out. They were the number two team in the world coming in. So that that's a little button there for Tonga to push if they can start well. Uh, get the crowd behind them, you know, get people believing in them, get believing in themselves because they keep in the contest for the first 20 minutes. Like, I think it would be an enormous stretch to see them winning, but I think, you know, putting Ireland under pressure for 75, 80 minutes would be a great result for Tonga. And how would you assess uh, Tonga's prospects uh, as a whole? I mean, it's, it's an incredibly tough pool uh, w- in which they find themselves. They have to play Scotland, yep. ranked number five in the world, South Africa, ranked number two, and, and Romania, number 19, so four places below Tonga. But I mean, essentially, every game they play is going to be very, very tough. Yeah, well, with the exception of Romania, who I think they'll be targeting as a, as a victory, and they should be, they should beat Romania. Uh, but yeah, the other three jeepers, that's what numbers one, three and five in the world right now. And, you know, that, that, uh, to, to win a game against that calibre is going to be exceptionally difficult. My own country, Scotland, are going to struggle you know, to come home with more than, than two victories. That's how tough that pool is. So it's, it, there's a wee bit of a shame here because I think if Tonga had found themselves just by the quirk of fate on the other side of the draw, uh, you know, with the, the heavyweights there being England, Argentina, Australia, Wales none of whom are the calibre of um, you know, Ireland, South Africa and Scotland at the moment, then we might be having a completely different conversation with a quarter-final place being an absolutely genuine and achievable ambition for Tonga. So it's a wee bit of a shame that they've landed where they have, given the team that they've been able to accumulate. But look, I think given the change in eligibility and the rise and rise of, hopefully, Moana Pacifica as a super rugby team, like hopefully come next World Cup, Tonga have got a pretty similarly looking competitive team together again and get a get another go at this and maybe a slightly less um, forbidding group. And it's important to point out, I think, that um, the top two in the pools qualify for the knockout stage, but the team that finishes third still wins in a sense because they get automatic place in the next World Cup and Tonga and Samoa of course both missed out last time now Samoa their pool Argentina ranked 10 Japan ranked 14 England ranked 6 but their first game up against Chile ranked 22 their their first time they've been in the World Cup I mean this is a golden opportunity for for the Manu to start with a win surely they have to win that game and get that momentum 
Yeah, well, absolutely right. That's a game that they need to win and they should win. Uh, I saw a wee bit of Chile uh, in their opening game and, yeah, they were actually quite enterprising. But, like, I think Samoa have got too much quality, too many good players, too much experience, too much coaching now in their group to get caught out by a Chilean team several places below them in the world uh, ranking order and only ever at the first World Cup here. So, yeah, look, that's a game that not only do they need to win, but I think they probably need to pick up the bonus point there because bonus points could become a factor in their pool. And look, I don't know if you watched the England-Argentina game, but Argentina were absolutely awful. And England, who somehow managed to win that game, have been pretty awful themselves coming into the tournament. So despite the fact that they won and they played quite well to win it, I wouldn't have a great deal of confidence in them being able to back it up. And Argentina are flighty at the best of times. They are, they are hot and cold. And Japan, look, they're entirely beatable as well. I think Samoa beat them um, you know, coming into the World Cup. I know it's a wee bit different pre-World Cup to World Cup. So you're looking at that going, look, there's opportunities here of Samoa post you know, a solid and steady victory against Chile just to get one under the belt, so to speak, get themselves going and into the tournament. There's there's a there's an outside chance that they can keep going and they could knock off Japan, and if they get Argentina on the you know on a bad day and, Ar- and if Argentina is bad as they were the other day, I would back Samoa to beat them. But these are big ifs and buts, and we don't know if Argentina will ever play that badly again. So I would be reasonably optimistic about Samoa's chances of of certainly keeping alive the prospect of making the quarterfinals through at least two games here. And uh, not a bad situation for the coach to be in choosing between Christian Lefano and uh, Lima Sopoanga at fly half. Uh, the former Wallabies got the nod, but to have the other guy on the bench, I mean, that, that, that shows, doesn't it, how, how these changes in eligibility have impacted on the sides and how coaches now have more room to manoeuvre, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. But those two, you, that's what you want in your number 10. Uh, vast experience, which both of those guys have. And I think Christian played pretty well this year. I haven't kept track on Lima. He's been over on this side of the world. But I know that Christian played well throughout Super Rugby and he's entirely committed yeah, to, to playing for Samoa. So that's that's a great game operator for them to have a great game manager. What we're seeing so far in this World Cup, partly because of the heat, um, you know, game management's a huge factor because you're running for 80 minutes uh, is not Well, it wasn't feasible on the first weekend. It has cooled down a wee bit, but not much. Um, so conditions are quite oppressive, very hot, very humid. Uh, ball is a little bit wet because, I mean, it's a bit revolting, but the, there's just so much sweat on the jerseys and on the ball. So it's, it's playing like it's a wet ball, but the ground's hard, which makes it trickier. So being in the right places of the field at the right time, not running forever you know, out of your own territory is critical. We saw the teams that have played without the ball and, and, have, and have put together a smart kicking plan were the ones that predominantly prevailed over the weekend. So for Sam Moore to have you know, the, the option of those two or to be able to double team them, bring one off the bench to keep that whole kind of computer centre running nicely, that gives them a real uh, ability to, to be strategic in how they play the game, which is going to be critical, I think. And uh, a word on the All Blacks. Um, they've already made a bit piece of unwanted history by losing a pool game for the first time, that, that against the host nation France. But next up, Namibia, then Italy and Uruguay. I mean, th- those three games shouldn't pose too much of a problem for the All Blacks, should they? Oh, no, look, 
this has sort of been blown a little bit out of proportion, I suppose, because the first time the All Blacks have ever lost a pool game. But if you look uh, for every other country, this is sort of fairly standard. I would have thought to you know to to lose an opening pool game, but you know then you you've got three games coming up that they can then go on and make sure that they qualify. So it's just unusual for the All Blacks. Never been here before, and I think people are a wee bit spooked by that. But there's no need to be. I mean, they, they, they clearly have a few issues that they need to fix up. The scrummaging wasn't particularly good against France, and their discipline collapsed when they came under pressure. But we, we saw a different All Black team earlier in the year, one that was holding up particularly well to pressure. So we know that they can do it. They just need to bring it out. And they've also got a handful of you know top players injured in that first game. So you bring all that back in, you... you you assume with the All Blacks, because this is what they're all about, that they learn. You know, they learn quickly and they adapt. So you'd have to back them to learn uh, plenty from that opening game and to adapt as the tournament goes on, because that's that's what they're great at doing. Um, yeah, look, I, I wouldn't count them out, because if, if and when, and it will be when they make the quarterfinals, uh, they could be a different team again. And what we're seeing in this tournament, I think, is that it really does come down. The margins between the top teams are so thin it's who plays well on the night. France played well on the night. They beat the All Blacks, but you put them back against each other in a couple of weeks and you know it might be the other way around. It's already been a very interesting World Cup and uh, still much more to unfold. Uh, Gregor, so, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Lyon this morning and uh, enjoy the matches you'll get to see this weekend. Will do. Thank you. Cheers. Gregor Paul there, rugby writer for the New Zealand Herald. He's with the All Blacks in the French city of Lyon, but uh, he keeps a close eye on the Pacific Island nations and has been a great advocate for the Pacific Island teams over the years. Samoa versus Chile, incidentally, kicks off at 2am Samoan time on Sunday morning. And Tonga versus Ireland, that game kicks off at 8am Tonga time, also on Sunday morning. And for the record, New Zealand versus Namibia. I could see them racking up an awful lot of points against the Namibians in that game. It starts at 7am New Zealand time on Saturday morning. So the All Blacks will be in action first, then Samoa and then Tonga. Let's hope for a success for all three. Pacific Beat. You're with Pacific Beats here on ABC Radio Australia. It's our Friday morning sporting edition and players, coaches and pundits alike have been lining up to criticise the referee who took charge of the Flying Fijians opening match at the Rugby World Cup against Wales, which they lost 32-26. The official has come under fire for treating Fiji unfairly by being too lenient on their opponents with his handling of the game labelled as disgraceful and grotesque in some quarters, sparking calls for World Rugby to issue an apology. A leading figure in Fijian rugby for many years is former FRU board member Kulden Kamea, who publishes the online Tivovo rugby magazine. He doesn't like to see referees criticised, but was as upset as any Fiji supporter by what happened in the game against Wales. So will the outcry lead to a change in approach by the referees who are in charge of future games involving the Pacific Island teams? I hope it does. I hope it does. I personally don't think it will. It'll be a while longer yet. You know, we have to get more referees up to standard. And I hope that, um, and I'm sure World Rugby is going down that pathway so that more of our officials can qualify from other, not only here in Fiji, but other parts of the Pacific and other so-called second tier nations of the world. I always think it's poor form from experience to criticize the referees too much. 
I think, you know, on balance, he was a pretty poor referee to both sides, to be honest. I think uh, we had our chances, VG. I think we you should always take the referee out of the equation by winning as um, comprehensively as you can. Yes, I agree in total that the refereeing was very poor. The TMO was even worse because he had the benefit of slow motion replays and being able to replay and replay over and over again. And I thought he, he made some pretty poor calls and uh, some of our tries, I think three of them in total, didn't count in the end. It does raise the point, though, doesn't it? That, as you say, that there is the backup here for the referee. There are television replays available that can be looked at and things can be checked. And what's supposed to happen is that clear and obvious errors are put right. And yet there are many observers of that game between Fiji and Wales who say there were clear and obvious errors and they weren't put right. Ben Ryan, for example, I mean, clearly he's pro-Fiji, having been been in charge of the sevens team with great success, but he's now elsewhere in the rugby world and he was pretty outraged by what he saw. Yes, that's true. There's a great quote by the South Sydney Rugby League's uh, club's coach. He gave a great comment on uh, how uh, <laughs> how the uh, bunker in the NRL is just, uh, you know, more jobs for the boys. Instead of helping the game, you're just throwing it out to another level of, um, I guess, complexity. And this is what's happened here. A couple of the tries for Fiji, the referee awarded it, had said it's an on-field try, but the uh, bunker has, in this case, overruled. And, uh, you know, you'd think the technology, I, I was um, just thinking back before the World Cup, there was a big release about this new technology in the Gilbert Ball that World Rugby had totally supported and I thought it was going to be in use at the World Cup, which uh, can tell them a lot more information about board passes, uh, balls going, scoring tries, etc., etc. And, uh, you know, with all that technology, whether it was in play and with the the replays available to the TMO, but then it still comes back to human uh, decision and that's sadly uh, what could have happened here with the TMO. It leaves Fiji in, in a position now where they have Australia up next so they've had their two on paper at least their two toughest fixtures will be the first two that they play and essentially uh, I think if they don't beat Australia that their chances of making the quarterfinal whilst not gone will be very slim absolutely the Wallabies are going to be a lot harder than Wales you know you've got Eddie Jones as controversial as he is is a very smart guy he's got this very young Wallaby squad they're obviously all buying into his message and he's had the opportunity to watch Fiji versus England and now Fiji versus Wales. And he'll come out and, uh, you know, the Wallabies and Fiji, we play a similar Southern Hemisphere type of game, both in the uh, Super Rugby, where our drawer players have come from. So he'll know what to expect, as uh, Warren Gatlin hinted. They always knew that Fiji could bounce back, and we did. So I think it's going to be a lot tougher for Fiji against uh, the Wallabies. But I think all of us here at home uh, are just happy that this team is doing us proud, and uh, we know they'll do us proud again against the Wallabies. I think it's an advantage to be playing the top two tests, uh, the harder tests or the perceived harder games of this pool up front, back to back. I think our guys have got it in them. They've got the, you know, it's uh, just uh, need to really knuckle down and, and beat the Wallabies. We've got two bonus points out of the Wales game, so that'll count in our favour. And then that'll leave a great battle between Australia and Wales to then sort things out after our game if we win. But we've got to win. There's no two ways about it. I'm sure these boys will put up a very, very good show. I think they can beat the Wallabies. One of my hopes is that they spin the ball wider more. I think uh, they've been too forward-focused. In saying that, I have total respect for the forwards because we've never seen a Fiji team like this win seven scrums in the test against any Tier 1 nation. They held their own against England, held their own against France. 
And uh, they're doing it, you know, really, really well in the forwards. For once, we've got some parity there. But you've got Rondrandra and the other level and three Silva outside you, three of the best backs in the world. Surely you've got to let them run loose one-on-one. Just to come back to the point about um, refereeing, my understanding is that uh, the referee for the game against the Wallabies is from England, officially at least, but was apparently born in Wales. Does that give you cause for concern? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it is, yeah, incredible. Uh, no, no. Honestly, uh, Richard, I think uh, these guys uh, have been chosen on merit. They're the best in the world. They just all happen to come from the Northern Hemisphere. I actually prefer the French referees because they seem to let a lot of things flow more. They're used to, I guess, a more open-style game. Even the South African referees, your guy from Australia, one of the best in the world, I feel. Unfortunately, we haven't got them, so we just have to go with the flow. But I always say, and this is not from me, but from the mouths of many, many coaches much smarter than me, you've got to take the ref out of the equation. We have to do that. We've got to be good enough to take all of our chances so that the referee and the TMO's um, decision-making really doesn't influence the outcome of the game. We shall see. Kulden uh, Kamea, publisher of the online Tevova Rugby magazine and the Flying Fijians match against the Wallabies in Saint-Étienne kicks off at 3.45am Fijian time on Monday morning. I'm sure plenty of people will be up early for that. In the Fale is a brand new music show on ABC Radio Australia. Hosted by me, Paolo Tukefu. I'll be spinning my favourite tunes from dancehall to disco, calypso to country, reggae to roots, and hip-hop to house music. From across the era to keep the kids and the aunties happy. If it has a pumping groove, I'll be bringing it to you to bump you into the weekend. In the Fale, Fridays at 4pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Time to turn our attention to some of the uh, news stories around the Pacific on this uh, Friday morning. Uh, Kyle Evans is here to bring us up to date. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Richard, and uh, welcome back to the chair. Thank you very much indeed, and uh, thank you to you for uh, holding the fort. (laughs) (laughs) Not a problem. So you came back too early. You could have uh, been over for the Rugby World Cup. Uh, yeah, it has been mentioned to me, and my timing wasn't great on the ashes either, so uh, I was in England at the wrong time. But never mind, you can't always get these things right. Now, to some of the news stories into Papua New Guinea first. Businesses in and around uh, Porgera, they're pleading for government help and support, essentially to stay alive. So what's the problem here? Yeah, so these businesses are the ones adjacent to the soon-to-be-reopened uh, Porgera Gold Mine, uh, who unfortunately are on their last legs since that mine closed down three years ago. Now, that mine is set to reopen. Uh, However, the local Chamber of Commerce told RNZ that they want government funding promised to the area to go directly to the businesses uh, that have struggled since that closure. Um, They say many shut down during the closure uh, as as so much cash flow just simply left the town. That led to many social problems such as unemployment. Uh, And they think the government should provide compensation for what happened, uh, especially given that it was the government who, you know, was unable to reach an agreement on that new lease, which uh, which closed the mine uh, in the first place. So the Chamber also wants some money to be made available through the National Development Bank in order to reactivate businesses that have closed uh, and to also clear some outstanding debt. And of course, this all follows Marape's calls to uh, to end the violence in that region so that mine simply can reopen. So yeah, I'm sure he'll probably want to see that happen before he turns attention to the businesses. Yeah, it's been a long and uh, complicated problem that the PNG government has been wrestling with. Now, a growing Pacifica population, we're told, uh, could have a significant influence on the 
outcome of the upcoming New Zealand election. That's right. Yeah, so an academic says the power of uh, Pacific voters is growing, which is giving them increasing influence uh, within New Zealand. So that's according to a University of Auckland associate professor in statistics, Andrew Spall is his name. Uh, And he told Pacific Media News that the Pacific population is growing faster than other groups, meaning their voter base is also growing. He said uh, half of the Pacific population now is under under the age of 25, and every new election there's another 25,000 Pacific votes, which you know in a country of five million is uh, that can move move the needle a little, a little bit. Absolutely can. So are those numbers being reflected during political campaigning? Well, no, uh, according to this article. So they also quoted the Tongan, Tongan Advisory Council of Auckland Chair Molino Marker, and, uh, and he said some parties actually make the mistake of overlooking Pacific voters. Um, however, at the same time, Melito said many Pacific people don't actually vote and therefore political resourcing uh, is often directed elsewhere. Um, look, that, that being said, there's obviously votes to be had and, and yeah, it'll be interesting to see if, uh, if candidates take note of that when that election gets held on October 14, which, funnily enough, will be the same date that the, uh, the vote gets held uh, for The Voice in Australia. That's true. Yes, it's going to be a big day in two countries. Now, it's going to be a big weekend for Rugby League in Papua New Guinea next weekend. Series of matches being played, the highlight of which will be the two matches between the men's and women's Prime Ministers 13s from Australia and PNG. PNG have named their men's squad, so who's made the cut? That's right. So 18 players have been named for that September 23 clash. Uh, there's some familiar faces uh, in the mix as well as some new ones, uh, most of which have come from the uh, the Host Plus Cup and, and another player from England, that being uh, Nene McDonald. So among the more familiar faces are, are Roderick Tyre, Judah Rimbu and, uh, and Junior Rop, uh, all of whom had good seasons with the Hunters. Um, brothers Zach and Kyle Laybutt are back. Uh, Zach in particular actually played four games with the Cowboys this year, so re- really promising uh, up and coming player. Um, his Cowboys teammate Robert Derby and Trey Stewart from the St. George St. George Dragons. There's some other notable names as well. And uh, and Gary James features as the one and only Digicel Cup player uh, following his flag winning season uh, with the Anger Meox. So uh, yeah, pretty pretty good team name. I'm actually surprised More More uh, didn't didn't get selected. I'm not sure what the story is there, but he was an electrifying player with the Hunters this season. I would have loved to see him suit up for the Kumuls. Yeah, curious that. Roderick Tyers had a good season. I think he's off to England now, isn't he, with the Warrington Wolves, mm. I believe. So he's obviously another one of the PNG players who's been noticed and is making an impact. But yeah, the game is back in PNG because the last one was in Fiji, if memory serves me correct. So let's see how that plays out uh, next weekend, and we'll talk more about that, no doubt, on Friday's programme next week. Carl, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Richard. This year marks 60 years of the Pacific Games. To celebrate, ABC Radio Australia invites you to be part of our Pacific Games storytelling competition. Did you volunteer when your country hosted the Games? Maybe you were in the crowd when Pacific Sprint Queen Toya Whistle won triple gold. Or perhaps you were part of an opening ceremony and want to share your experience. Games are your games, and we want to hear your stories. Successful storytellers will be mentored by ABC professionals and have their stories featured on ABC Radio Australia, as well as our socials in the lead-up to the 2023 Pacific Games in Solomon Islands. And you'll be paid for your work. Head to abc.net.au forward slash Pacific to enter.
Yeah, we'll be very interested to hear from you, whichever Pacific Games you may have been involved in uh, over the years. And we look forward to those stories uh, unfolding between now and the Games in Honiara in November. Now, I'm really excited for this new beginning for myself and my family, and I think it's going to be a great journey, especially for me, to dive deep into my Samoan heritage and roots. The words of Julian Sevier, the former All Black, after he agreed to play for Moana Pacifica and Super Rugby Pacific next year, capped 54 times in New Zealand, scoring 46 tries. Severe is considered to be one of the greatest players of his era and his arrival at Moana is being seen as a huge boost to the team's prospects of attracting other big names. Severe's arrival follows that of another all-black great with Samoan heritage, Tana Umanga, who will be coaching Moana in 2024. By persuading Severe to sign a deal, the club's chief executive, Palanato Sakalia, says they have secured the services of a diamond. He's an iconic player. He's our first All Black signing. So I, I think it is fair to say that he's probably our most significant signing in terms of what Julian has actually achieved in the game to date and what he can bring to Moana in terms of his well-known capabilities, but his experience, which will be invaluable in our environment. And is that really the most important factor in this signing as to the way he perhaps can galvanise the team with his experience? Because there will be those who say, I'm sure that he's passed his best. We're coming into our third season. So we're still in a start-up phase and we're building a squad. There's going to be a lot of young talents coming through our development systems and coming through into our main playing squad. So when you get the opportunity, when you're in a privileged position to have someone of the calibre of Julian come into our environment, not only does he bring his ability to be impactful on the field, but his ability to help our talents, you know, the wider squad, that's significant. Could he also bring influence to bear in terms of other players who might be thinking about Moana Pacifica, but now he's made the move. Others, big names too, may follow him. And my understanding is that Tano Omanga, who's going to be your coach next season, he's been working with Manu Samoa and he's been approached by a few Samoan players who say, well, yeah, we quite like the idea of playing for Moana. Could Julian just tip them over the edge, do you think? Yeah, potentially. We think that people can see that we've been able to come through two really turbulent years, COVID-affected years. I don't think you could have picked the worst times to establish a brand new franchise. And I think people can see, wow, you know, they've got through year one, they've got through year two, they're coming into year three, they've got a new coach that's come in of the experience and of the calibre of Tana Umanga, who's really motivated and has hit the ground running. We've now got players of the calibre of Julian and his experience and yeah it is going to have an impact on those that are probably been musing about Moana and hopefully it will start to nudge things our way. So names that I've seen mentioned include a couple of former All Blacks in, in Stephen Luatur and Lima Sopawanga. I mean any suggestion that they could be in the squad for next season? Have you heard any, any whispers? Tana plays these things um, very close to his chest, as all head coaches do when they're when they're assembling their squads. But I am aware there's certainly a lot of approaches to Tana and the contracting team about players being interested. We're just really fortunate that with Tana's introduction as head coach, and now with the confirmation of the signing of Julian, that people are starting to go, oh yeah, Moana is not just an option, but they're becoming a meaningful option 
for people to look at. And looking ahead to the 2024 season, as you say, it will be your third season in Super Rugby Pacific. How many games at this stage would you anticipate playing in the Pacific? I know when you and I have spoken in the past, I think you said on one occasion, ideally, you'd like to play all your home games, either in Tonga or Samoa. If only we had the money to be able to do that, the bankroll taking all our home games, you know, it's a it's a significant uh, undertaking um, hosting these games in the Pacific. Well, we're committed to taking a home game to Tonga and we're committed to taking a home game to Samoa. We're also investigating going into another region in the Pacific area. We hope to be in a position in the near future to talk a little bit more about that. But we're definitely increasing the numbers of games that we're playing in the Pacific region for 2024. So there is a possibility, at least, that you could be playing a match in a third Pacific country other than Tonga and Samoa. Uh, That's correct. That's what we're looking at. And I presume part of the reason for doing that would be to help that country with its own rugby development, would it? Oh, without a doubt. One of the things for Moana Pacifica, it's it's straightforward for us. You know, we are about the Pacific. We are about the people. We are about the Moana. So it's logical for us to constantly be finding ways to bring games to the Pacific. But as I've been saying quite a bit to my fellow CEOs, we are core Super Rugby Pacific. So I genuinely believe that it's not just for Drua and for Moana Pacifica, you know, to do what we're doing, to bring, you know, it's to greater impact to the Pacific. I personally think that the competition has an obligation to do more in the Pacific. And the more that we do in the Pacific, not only will it be good for the Pacific nations, but it will also be good for the competition. So Moana Pacifica will be doing everything we can to really accelerate that. But we're really looking forward to seeing what Super Rugby Pacific, the owners of the competitions and the participants within the comp, what it is that they can do collectively along with Drua and Moana Pacifica to really accelerate the plan of games in the region. Pelanato Sakalia, Chief Executive of Moana Pacifica. I wonder what that third country might be. Cook Islands, perhaps, Papua New Guinea, maybe Vanuatu, Solomon Islands. We'll find out in due course and hopefully keep you posted here on Pacific Beat. Papua New Guinea RFL have chosen their Prime Minister's 13 lineup for the match against the Australian 13 in Port Moresby next weekend. And we've double-checked, and it does feature Maria Maria from the PNG Hunters, which is good news. I know Carl will be pleased about that. Not for the first time, the side is indeed dominated by players from the Hunters who make up half the squad, in fact. Meanwhile, though, looking to the next generation, PNG's first ever Youth Academy has recently wrapped up at the end of an eight-week pilot programme. Nearly 80 of Port Moresby's top under-14 and under-16 players took part and the plan now is to create a pathway for developing male and female players from the grassroots up to the professional ranks by rolling the program out across the country. The man in charge is Joe Grimmer who has coached at assistant level in the NRL and was head coach with the London Broncos in England and only took over as PNG's head of elite player developments in July. I had to plan the eight-week program to systematically go around and work on the foundations of rugby league, the grip, carry, catch, pass, tackle technique, the real basic fundamentals to rugby league. But as we move forward into year two and so forth, that is a non-negotiable for them to improve in their skill development. Did the program provide you guys, you know, with the data required so you can make assessments and then, you know, develop players further? 
It did. Um, some of the data that was captured and measured against programs that have been run successfully in Australia, and not surprisingly, we found our players to be faster and as strong over a 20 and 40 metre sprint. Where we need to work a little bit is our aerobic capacity, but I'm not too sure if they actually understood what the test was looking to produce and I think it was a case of not understanding it as well as they should and given we're going to run it a second time I think it's going to be a great improvement so very very happy with the results. How did you find the kids compared um, you know skill wise to those in Australia and uh, and New Zealand? The raw talent is they they have it in abundance Um, but the technical and the tactical um, the areas it, it, it was really difficult to um, go through those training programs with these young men. I had to have certain things interpreted because the way that we speak about an action or an activity or a skill is completely different. So the terminology, um, some of the things that we needed to discuss and, and speak about, not only did we show on a whiteboard in the middle of the field, but I had to provide it in Tok Pitten through an interpretation through a trainer. So we had those challenges. But leading into your question is that they just didn't have the understanding of um, some of the real basic parts of getting a skill or holding a ball correctly. But once we were able to get to that next level, it just transferred their skill element to another level. And the buy-in was very, very refreshing. Oh, that's great to hear. I'm, I'm sure the, the, the translating in, in talk pissing would have been a learning experience even for yourself. It was, it was. And you know what? Um, it, it's been great. Um, everyone at work, um, I encourage them to talk, talk bitten, opposed to English. So that way I have a broader understanding to the point where I'm rolling out a PNG coaching manual and the illustrations and the descriptions are going to be based in talk bitten. So when we roll it out, the language is consistent all over PNG, not just in Port Moresby. Now, a group of 20, I understand, will be selected for further training. How's that coming along? Have those 20 been identified? Yes, they have. Uh, We've identified 15 players in the under-16s program and five in the under-14s program. That will commence after the completion of the PM's weekend, uh, which is on the 23rd and 24th of this month. So we will roll out some more elite coaching in the aspects of video analysis, statistical information, and some additional information when it comes to hydration, diet, nutrition, sleep, things like that. So we've identified those players. They have been notified, and the excitement is palpable. Yeah. Is there a special plan for that group of 20? Will they be developed into like a, uh, you know, a Port Moresby select side or a representative side or something like that? No, not at this stage. We've actually got data now that we can measure, and that data will be compared to the same data in 12 months' time. So it'll give us an understanding of how far they've developed in the skill aspect as well as, you know, the strength, speed and conditioning part of it. So that's what we'll roll out nationally. But those players that have been identified, I would imagine, would be identified in the next 12 months, two years to represent perhaps a junior Kummels or being considered by NRL clubs uh, looking to foster, you know, recruitment from PNG in Australia, whether it be New South Wales or Queensland. 
Yeah, that's, that's really exciting to hear. And just finally, Joe, looking ahead, I know you've got plans to, to take this program nationally. What's the process now? Will there be like a workshop phase before you roll it out on a mainstream level? Yes, there is. It will be. What we'll do now, now the program is finished, we'll conclude the next six weeks of the Junior Elite Talent Squad, the Jets program, and we'll sit down with a number of stakeholders within the PNG RFL and work out what learnings or how we can improve the program before we roll it out into the different confederate areas of PNG. Because who knows, in the Highlands, there are different challenges to what we have and different challenges against from the New Guinea Islands. So it's something that we'll be unpacking. PNG's Head of Elite Player Development on the Rugby League field, Joe Grimmer, who was a player featured in 58 NRL games for the Parramatta Eels and at the same time was coach of Malta's national team. So he's used to multitasking. Now he's out to play a key role in securing a spot for a PNG team in the NRL in four years' time. And some of the young players coming through the academy process could feature in that team if all goes to plan. Joe was talking there to Kyle Evans. Pacific Beat. Now, time to cast an eye over some of the sporting topics that have been sparking a conversation in social media posts during the week with sports writer and moderator of the Fiji Rugby Players Facebook Forum, Tia Rocco. Uh, welcome, Tia. Good to have you on the program once again. Good morning and Pacific greetings to you all, uh, Richard, from Arnhem Land. Welcome back. It's so good to be here for it has been a while. Yeah, it has, it has, but uh, good to be up and running again. And here we are in the midst of a Rugby World Cup and Fiji in the midst of controversy over their defeat against Wales um, the other day. I mean, what do you make of it? Uh, Have you calmed down after all the drama? (laughs) Well, yes, here we are, Richard, at Rugby World Cup 2023. And already the opening games last weekend, we see a lot of twists and turns. And it's shaping to be a Rugby World Cup of upsets or near upsets. And the one that makes for a lot of speculation, look, from a place of neutrality, there is the argument that this kind of competition with millions of eyes watching, I read somewhere, uh, someone said that the listening of laws and sub-clauses and, uh, you know, makes a near impossible uh, job for uh, that faces referees and puts heavy responsibility on refereeing in this case, uh, as we all know, the, the game between Wales and Fiji, a conversation that has certainly gone viral uh, in the aftermath. Historically, Richard, we know at this event, uh, we know that Fiji has certainly slain this dragon once in 2007. And this is the fifth straight World Cup where these two teams have met Richard in the pool stage. And the last game that was close in points was, the, of course, the 2007 uh, Rugby World Cup. So age-old rivals, you could say. What a heart-wrenching and thrilling game it was. Thousands of fans, like myself, woke up early in our parts of the world uh, to watch Fiji's first game, and it was heartbreaking, to say the least. And as a Fijian, this brought up mixed emotions, apart from crying at the final seconds of the game, Richard. And what you have here is uh, the obvious errors in refereeing early in the World Cup fixture. We know that this is going to be an issue. Refereeing is going to be an issue for teams across the board. Uh, Well-known players uh, and advocates, uh, as you mentioned earlier, like Ben Ryan, have jumped online to advocate, uh, sympathise and drive the fact that Tier 2 nations are treated one way and Tier 1 nations the uh, the other. Uh, And, you know, Richard, it's somewhat for us as a region, it causes us to look within and see how far we have come in the last last few decades 
uh, for the sport. You know, the first time Fiji ever played uh, rugby internationally was barefooted. We have had a stormy journey with our governance and continue to do so on the local front. Then came Super Rugby, thanks to sports diplomacy in the Pacific. Then we became visible, whereas before we were just a gaze away, but we finally got a seat at the table in the space. And the Fijian Jua is a classic example of how uh, rugby in the Pacific can shape positive uh, trajectories, Richard. Uh, you know, impossibilities became possibilities, case in point, the warm-up games before the big dance of the Rugby World Cup and Fiji beating England gave us hope that we could potentially do uh, something here. And just in closing, uh, you know, Richard, on this topic, I like how ABC Pacific uh, reporter Dan Leo saying that, uh, you know, to see progress for our Pacific Island teams We've got to build our brand power, and that's why it's so important that our results are right uh, this year at the World Cup. So we start building that brand power that allows us to leverage that. And I think, you know, Richard, um, I, as well as other commentators, all agree that World Rugby needs to do better at this. And the competition has just started, and the game between Fiji and Wales uh, proves that we are no longer the lone voices out there, that games for Tier 2 nations will be scrutinised So change needs to happen and we'll have a look this weekend when our brothers from the Pacific, Tonga and Samoa take the stage. It'll be interesting to see what happens there, Richard. No doubt about that. Now, I'm interested to get your take on uh, Semi Randrandra's father, who uh, after Semi unfortunately dropped that pass near the end of the game that could have put Fiji in with a chance of winning the match. They would have still had to convert had he scored the try. We should remember that. But his father's jumped on board and said, you know, Please be kind to my son. Please feel sympathetic for him. And you can understand why he's done that. But I'm, I'm thinking he's actually made a bad situation worse, hasn't he? I mean, isn't it, isn't it the case of let sleeping dogs lie? Uh, making it worse, Richard, I don't know if it made a difference. I mean, Randrandra is an icon and the darling of Pacifica Rugby and Rugby League, a success story who is human after all. Look, you know, a, a heartfelt moment from his dad. But to be honest, the Fijians were forgiving. They knew the team was caught between a rock and a hard place. There was no blame. Things happened so quickly at the last dying moments of the game. And to be honest, we all all felt for the team. We saw the fight. We saw our warriors battle. And logically, we cannot isolate that moment uh, as it clearly was not a moment of blame. It was a moment that definitely uh, united us as a people, one that we will never forget and talk about in years to come. But clearly, Dad did not need to ask for forgiveness as there was nothing really to say sorry for, Richard. Yeah, I think I would uh, rather agree with that. Now, Julian Severe, who scored 46 tries for the All Blacks, played more than 50 times for New Zealand and uh, now is uh, on the books at Moana Pacifica and I'm thinking quite likely to put his hand up to play for Manu Samoa in the future. But with him signing for Moana, such a big name, such a great player, how big a turning point could this be for the Super Rugby Pacific side? Oh, I think this is going to be very exciting. Uh, briefly on this, Richard, I read somewhere that the Hurricanes did not want Julian, therefore he signed up with Moana Pacifica. Look, holistically, I think that it is a good transition for Severe and kudos to Moana Pacifica for their game. You remember, Richard, we talked about it on this show. We talked about when, uh, you know, Super Rugby um, Pacific uh, began, you know, imagining if the likes of Ardi Severe were to join Moana Pacifica 
here. And, you know, it is going to happen eventually. I would like to think that some of the Northern Hemisphere players would also transition to make Southern Hemisphere Pacifica representation strong. We would like to think that most players of Pacific heritage will have that transition as a natural one. I mean, it's inevitable one day soon. Uh, we hope to see the Moana or the Ndrua be a finalist at the Super Rugby level. And I think that day will come soon, Richard. And just a quick word on the soccer front. We had the Olympic qualifying tournament uh, played out uh, recently. New Zealand, as they often do, won and qualified for the Summer Olympics. In the final, they played Fiji. They won that match nine goals to nil. The Papua New Guinea team turned up late and obviously didn't help their chances. Pacific Island soccer seems to be in a bit of a mess and the gulf between them and New Zealand seems to be getting wider. Would you agree? Yes, uh, devastating for Fiji in that um, final and PNG turning up late. I mean, look, Richard, the writing is on the wall. Unfortunately, there is a yawning gulf and it's obvious that uh, soccer in the Pacific needs a major overhaul. Uh, In closing, I will join the voices of many to say that there are historical issues here at play. Local grassroots uh, competition needs to be looked at, in particular the elephant in the room for sports uh, generally in the Pacific, and that is especially around uh, the areas of government. And I think that when you improve the standard uh, at the local level, it increases your chances and it improves the standard on the international um, uh, stage as well. So, yeah, um, unfortunate for the Pacifica teams, but hopefully uh, looking at um, um, areas that we can improve on with soccer in the Pacific. Tia, thanks very much indeed for your time. There is a soccer pro league on the way, we're told. Maybe that'll put things right. We shall see in due course. That's it from this edition of Pacific Beats. Pacific Beats.